This morning we will be looking at Revelation chapter 21. So let me invite you to turn there in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you today, you can use one of ours. It's in the pew right in front of you. Revelation chapter 21. I've been looking at the end times as John has seen this vision here in uh, at the end of his life. He writes down this this vision, which really is a prophecy of what will happen. And uh, it is designed to be an encouragement for the church. That is, that, that we should, as the church, live righteously and soberly, recognizing that, that we are waiting on the coming Christ. That Christ will come and make all things new. And that time has not come yet. And we live in a time where Things are seemingly inconsistent. They are often frustrating from a temporal perspective. And that's why God gives us this Word of His to help help us to have an eternal perspective. When we look on the, the nearsighted problems and the difficulties that face us, and legitimate ones at that, not just health problems or, or work issues, but but legitimate conflict coming from Satan and his demons. When we look at those conflicts, we, 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 are not, uh, we, we should not be discouraged by them, but we should see them in light of eternity, that God is using these to, to cause us to long more for the life to come. That as believers, we have something to look forward to. The, the life that we will be able to spend in eternity with God. I suppose if, if you're like me that you have imagined what eternity will be like with God. And we'll spend next week talking, taking some time to look at the activities that will be taking place while we spend eternity with God. That is, those who know Jesus Christ and who have submitted themselves to Him, we'll talk about those activities that we will uh, participate in throughout eternity. But but the text this week really focuses on what what the eternal kingdom will look like. What will be some of its key features? And so let's take a look at what God has to say to us in Revelation chapter 21 and we'll read verses 9 through the end of the chapter. I'll begin reading in Revelation chapter 21 with verse 9. This is the word of God. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names were written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. There are three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square, and its length 
is as great as its width. And he measured the city with a rod, 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its wall, 72 yards, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nation will walk the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The best part about eternity is that God is there. We are introduced, or we were introduced, as we saw last week, to this, what's called the New Jerusalem, the eternal kingdom, the place where God lives for all of eternity at the end of the age. Right now, we are in what's known as the age of grace, where we have God's primary, uh, God's primary focus in this world is on His church. That is, those who are true to Jesus Christ and will follow Him. But that age will come to an end. At the end of that age will be a time which Revelation talks about in chapters 4 through 19. It's a time of tribulation. It's a time that will last for seven years. Now, we don't know when that time will be, but we do know that Christ will come before that time. That, that He won't come to the earth, but He will meet us in the sky. That is, all believers will meet Christ in the air. And First Thessalonians 4 says, so will we ever be with the Lord. So the church is raptured. They are taken up to be with Christ. And, and then during that time, during the tribulation that comes on this earth that we live in, there will be great sorrow and judgment on those who oppose God. The Antichrist will take His reign. He, he will rule over the world, particularly at the midpoint of the tribulation. He will, have, he will have unprecedented rule. He will have power that that has never been seen before by a human ruler. And he will, he will kill those who do not get the mark of the beast. And uh, at the end of that time, Christ will come back, literally, He will come down to the Mount of Olives, touch down on the Mount of Olives with His bride, the church. He will have, during that time, that seven-year period, He will have married His bride, the church. Right now, Christ is perfecting that church. 
He is making them more like Himself so that they can be prepared and ready and spotless on that day. Christ will come with His church and He will bring final judgment to those who oppose Him. It will happen uh, with the people who are living on the earth uh, during what's known as the Battle of Armageddon. And all of the, the armies of the world will gather underneath the rule of the Antichrist. It will gather there in the, in the area near Jerusalem, probably 200 miles worth of people from north to south and 100 miles wide. They have all their weapons ready to fight and Christ will come and with the word of His mouth will destroy them. The Scriptures talk about it like He's crushing grapes in a wine press. That the wine press of God's wrath is being poured out on those people who have had opportunity after opportunity to repent. They have clearly seen that God is in this judgment and they still fail to repent. And only those who have trusted in Jesus Christ will be spared from that judgment at that time. Following that tribulation period of seven years, which is still to come, following that, ju- following that earthly judgment, the earth will be emptied of its inhabitants, uh, at least the, the sinful ones, and then Christ will come down and rule on this earth. He, ru- he will rule as king on uh, David's throne for 1,000 years. The earth will be cleaned up. There will no, be no more... Uh, there will no, be no more external evil allowed to be done because Christ reigns as King. And with Him, His bride reigns on thrones with Him. And, and they will rule with a rod of iron. Anybody who, is, who uh, has their sin exposed, that is, that they are openly sinful against the King, will be de- destroyed. But most people... Uh, when the, trip, when the millennial period begins, that is, the 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ begins, only believers will enter that period. But there are some who have survived that tribulation period I was talking about before, the seven-year tribulation period. There are some who survive that. And as a result, they do not receive what the Scriptures call a glorified body. So they still have a body that has the ability to reproduce, to procreate. And so there will actually be children born during the time of Christ's 1,000-year reign. And those children that are born, as I've mentioned before, are not born perfect. You probably know this very well if you have children or you are around children at all. You know that no one teaches them how to sin, how to lie, how to uh, steal from or, or, or throw a fit. No one teaches them that. They learn that on their. They know that because they're sinners. They're sinful. We are sinful by nature. At birth, we are sinful. And so when we have the opportunity to act out in our sin, we do it. And the same thing is going to happen with these children that are born during the time of the tribulation. Even though they will be given perfect circumstances, the perfect king, they will have a perfect environment, and they will have perfect in the sense of uh, not sinful parents. And yet they still will oppose the king. And they will do it subversively. They will do it in a subtle way. 
not not looking to be if if they ex- if they show their sin externally the king will judge them but the, but they'll be really quiet about it and they'll go through all the external forms but in their heart they hate God they hate the king and at the end of that 1000 year reign satan will be released from the abyss satan at the end of the tribulation was thrown into the abyss it's a it's a, a prison for him and his demons and he will be bound there, not allowed to do any harm to these people, not allowed to bring any uh, any temptation or anything like that to these people. And that tells you that these kids that grow up and these these uh, nations that are developing as a result of um, as a result of those survivors that came from the tribulation, it tells you how wicked their hearts are. It tells you how wicked our hearts are. And apart from the grace of Jesus Christ, we can't blame it on Satan. We can't blame it on our circumstances, on our family, on our environment. It's our own heart. And, and so Satan will be bound during that period and at the end of that, he will come. He will come back and allow to gather up all these people who have been opposing Christ internally. He will gather all these nations. They'll come to make war with Christ and His and his believers, all those who have trusted in him. And Christ will open up the earth and, uh, and uh, he, he's going to bring down fire from heaven and destroy them. And uh, at the end of that kingdom period, Christ will, uh, the earth will be, will be um, emptied of its inhabitants. All believers will will be suspended apparently in heaven for a period of time with God until the new heavens and the new earth come. But but before that happens, at the end of that that kingdom period, at the end of that 1,000 year reign of Christ, Christ is going to judge all of those who have opposed, opposed Him from all time. And the way that that happens is He sits on His what's known as the great white throne and every single dead person from the time of creation, that is, unbelieving dead, all the believing dead have been raised to life and are living with Christ now, right? But the unbelieving dead are still in the ground, they're in the sea, whatever. They're all going to be raised to life to stand before Christ in judgment. At that time, He's going to have a record of their deeds and the record of the, their deeds will show that they have opposed Christ and God. And then they will be thrown into the eternal lake of fire where they will forever be. We'll get a, a glimpse of that here at the end of this passage. Okay, So that brings us to where we are now. Just trying to give you a, a summary of where we've come in the book of Revelation. At the end of the kingdom, there's this judgment with Christ as the judge. And now all that's left Everybody else has been thrown into the lake of fire, including Satan and his demons. All that's left are is God, Christ, the Holy Spirit, the angels, the good angels, that is, and believers. And what God has been doing is He's been building, He's been designing, planning a, a new heaven and a new earth. That is, a, a new universe. That's the idea. And that's what, that's what this vision is here in chapter 21. It's a vision of this new universe that God is creating for His people. 
And uh, this new universe, this new Jerusalem specifically, is a city that's walled off and it has 12 gates. We'll see this here. And I said last week that this city is primarily designed for, it's the primary residence of God for sure, but also for Christ's bride, the church. And that's why at the end of this passage it says that nations will come to it because apparently they live outside of it, but they have free access to it. The gates are always open. So let me give you five descriptions of this city that we see in this passage. Five descriptions of this city. Number one, this new Jerusalem is a city of brilliance. Verses 9-11. through A city of brilliance. One of the seven angels that had one of the seven bowls of God's wrath comes to John. And he says, come here. In verse 9. Let me show you this Bride. Let me show you the bride. So we're expecting John, because of how he's used the word bride before, we're expecting John to, to be taken to see the church. But instead, notice verse 10 where the angel takes him. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain, and we would expect showed me the church. But he says, he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. So he said, let me show you the bride of Christ and then John sees the New Jerusalem. Now, what this is, what 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 is going on here probably is what's known as a metonymy of association. Okay, don't get caught up in that that uh, phrase. But but it's the idea of of a person or a group being represented by an object. Okay, let me give you an example. When you hear on the news that the White House says, and then they they explain what the White House says. We don't. Picture. We shouldn't picture the White House with a mouth going, wah, wah, you know, type thing. Same thing when we say Wall Street is is really down today. We don't see Wall Street as kind of slumping and really depressed. That's not the idea, right? It's a metonymy of association that has to do with with actual actually a people group, and that's the same idea here. When 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 the angel takes John to see the bride, he sees the home of the bride. The New Jerusalem, as we saw last week. Notice her brilliance in verse 11. That is the brilliance of the city. It says, having the glory of God. And her brilliance was like a very costly stone. as a stone of crystal clear jasper. Okay, Perhaps a better way to describe this is as a diamond. And what he's saying there is that the walls that I saw that are around the city they're made of precious stone. They're made of this crystal clear diamond. This city is brilliant. And throughout the Scriptures, when, when God's glory is seen, when God is at His throne, He's often depicted with brilliant colors. Turn to uh, Revelation chapter 4 with me. Revelation chapter 4. He's often described with having these brilliant colors surrounding His throne. And this is exactly what we see in Revelation chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Immediately, John says, I was in the Spirit, and behold, the throne was standing in heaven, and the One sitting on the throne, that is God. And He who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. See, God is spirit, and so we can't really see God. 
Okay, we can see God the Son, that is Jesus Christ. He is he he's taken on human flesh, but but God the Father is spirit. And so when John sees his throne, what he sees are all these magnificent colors, these magnificent uh, precious stone-like uh, colors. And so we should not be surprised by this, that this new Jerusalem, this is going to be the home, the eternal home of God. And it is made up of these brilliant colors. So first, the new Jerusalem is the city of brilliance. Back to chapter 21. Secondly, the new Jerusalem is a city of wealth. A city of wealth. Now, what you're going to see here is how valuable and how brilliant these this material is. And the brilliance of this material shows how valuable it is. Okay, so so uh, let's first look at her walls in verses 14 and 15. Verse 14, And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And then it talks about how the angel takes a measuring rod, the same as a human measuring rod, we find out in verse 17. But then in verse 21 it says, And the twelve gates were... Uh, I'm sorry, verse um, verse 17. And he measured its wall 72 yards according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. So the angel in verse 15 takes out his measuring rod. And in verse 17 he says, These measurements that I'm going to give you, John saying, these measurements that I'm going to give you, they, they coincide with human measurements. The angels measure in different ways, but they used our measurements so that we could have a little bit of a comprehension of what we're going to see. So whether the angel measured it or, or I measured it, it didn't matter. The, the, the point is going to be the same. And verse 12 says that it's a great and high wall. Notice in verse 16 it tells us the size of the wall. The, the city is laid out as a square and its length as is, is as great as the width and he measured the city with a rod 1,500 miles. Hey, literally, in the Greek language, it comes across as 12,000 stadia. So it works out to about 1,350 miles wide. 1,350 miles in length. And it's a square. It's laid out like a square. So we're talking about 7 million feet long and 7 million feet wide. That's hard for us to to imagine, it actually works out to about 1.9 million square feet. So it would be about half of the United States. If you think of the western coast of the United States, out to the Pacific, and come all the way over to the Mississippi, that would be the size of one city. Now, are there any cities on the earth that are that large? Absolutely not. This will be the size of God's city, 1,350 miles wide by 1,000 350 miles in length. But also, it is that tall as well. Do you see that in verse 16? At the end it says its length and width and height are equal. So how tall is this city going to be? How tall is this wall going to be in the city? 1,350 feet. Excuse me, 1,350 miles. Now, it's hard for us to get a grasp on that. We can understand the land area. Think about our United States. But but 1,350 miles tall? You know, the, the Empire State Building, 
is uh, about a quarter of a mile tall. And it's not even the tallest building in the world, is it? There's a building in Dubai, India. It's the tallest building in the world. It's called the Burj Khalifa. And it's twice as tall, twice as tall as the Empire State Building. And it only reaches a half a mile tall. And this wall in this city that's all connected will be 1,350 miles tall. That's 2,700 times the size of that building in India. And notice in verse 17, John gets an idea of its thickness. And he measured its wall. Remember, he already measured the height and the width and the length. So this is not talking about those things. He measured its wall and it's 72 yards thick. 216 feet. From this wall to the back door is 60 feet. So you could basically take about three or four of these rooms in length. And that's how thick the walls are. What were the walls made of? Diamond. Notice the materials in verse 14. We saw that they have 12 foundation stones. In verses 18 through 20, we have all these precious stones. And in order for this wall to be so high and so massive, it has to have these great foundation stones. And these foundation stones are laid at the bottom and there's 12 layers of these foundation stones and they represent or are symbolic of the apostles of the Lamb as we see at the end of verse 14. That that the the apostles will provide the foundation for this great city that we will be a part of. And apparently what you have is each one of these layers, jasper and sapphire and chalcedony, chalcedony, you have all of these layers. And then on top of that, apparently, is this pure jasper. That is the pure diamond. So, so most of the wall is going to be made up of diamond, but it has these 12 layers of foundation stone. 72 yards thick, 1,350 miles tall. And so in verse 14, look, look again there because I want you to notice that, that there seems still to be a distinction between the apostles, 12 apostles referring to the New Testament, and the the Old Testament Israel, that is the 12 tribes of Israel. At the end it says, and on them, that is the foundation stones, the 12 names of the 12 apostles. So because there's this distinction between the apostles and Israel, there there probably is still a distinction in the people of God. Not that one is better than the other, but they just serve different functions. They they came about in different times in history. Old Testament Israel, the twelve tribes of Israel were for one purpose and the twelve apostles were for another purpose. Both will be uh, precious in God's sight, absolutely, but, but there still, still seems to be some distinction between Israel and the church throughout eternity. We know that that's the case in that 1,000 year reign of Christ, that, that His church will reign over Israel, but, but it seems to be the case also in the eternal kingdom. So the magnificence of this city, its wealth is just it's just unfathomable. Now look at its gates in verses 12 and 13. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates. In verse 13, there were three gates on the east and three gates on the north and three on the south and three on the west. And, and the, the, the gates have names on them as well. At the end of verse 12, it says the 12 tribes 
of the sons of Israel. And then look down to verse 21 because we find out more about the, the value of these gates. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Each gate had a name of one of the twelve tribes of Israel. And it was made of, verse 21 says, a single pearl. A single pearl. Now that's hard to imagine because when we see pearls, we see them as very small things on a, on a woman's necklace, right? Women's jewelry. But, but there are bigger pearls than that. Uh, maybe you have them at your house and you just can't carry them around your neck because they're so heavy. But the largest known pearl in the world was discovered by a Filipino man in 1934. It's nine inches in diameter. It's actually oblong. It's about six inches by nine inches. And it weighs around 14 pounds. And its value is considered to be around $60 million for that size of a pearl. Now, we're talking about one gate that's made up of one single pearl. And if you took that size pearl that that guy found, the 14-pound pearl, and you just extended it up for 1,350 miles, then it would require 43 million of those pearls. That's the size. If you only had it this wide and this long, and it just extended up that long, you'd need 14 million of them. And it would make the value of that pearl $2.6 quintillion. And there are 12 of these, and they're not that small. They're going to be much larger gates than what I just described. This is the value of this new Jerusalem. God has unlimited resources because He is the Creator. Notice the purpose of the walls and why they're there. The text doesn't say explicitly, but it's clear that the walls are literal, that they are actual walls. But they also seem to be symbolic. And what do city walls generally do? What, what are they generally designed for? Think about Jericho. What were the city walls there for? Protection, right? What would, what would the New Jerusalem be protecting against? Be trying to protect itself against? And wouldn't it be evil? Sometimes, some type of Satan, its demons, evil people coming in. Okay, but, but actually what we find in this passage, notice verse 25. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. What good is a wall that has gates that aren't closed? If it's, it's not for protection then, what other purpose would it be? I think the answer is that it is there so that it can highlight who lives there. So it can highlight who lives there. Its, its streets, verse 21, are made of pure gold like transparent glass. If you were to walk up to this city today and just stand in front of it, you would be in utter shock. Your mouth would drop to the ground for sure. It would be awe-striking. But you know what's more awe-striking than the city itself? That is, the walls, its gates, its streets. It is who lives there. Look at verse 16. At the end of the verse it says, Its length and width and height are equal, 
And then verse 22, I saw no temple in it for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Here's the primary purpose of this walled structure. Remember what shape it is in? If its length is the same as its width, we said it's a square, but if the height is the same as its length and width, then what do we have? A cube. There's only one time in Scripture that the the object of a cube is used. Turn back to 1 Kings chapter 6 with me and I'll show you. 1 Kings chapter 6, towards the front of your Bible. Verse 16 of, of Revelation said that its length was as long as its width and its height was the same. They're all equal. Notice chapter 6, 1 Kings. Solomon's building the temple here, verse 14. Chapter 6, verse 14. So Solomon built the house and finished it. That is the temple. Skip down to verse 19. Then he prepared an inner sanctuary within the house in order to place there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits in length, 20 cubits in width, and 20 cubits in height. And he overlaid it with pure gold. In the Old Testament, there's only one cube. And that is this inner sanctuary of the temple. It is the place where the Ark of the Covenant is. It's the place where God's glory would come. When, when the priest would come in once per year and offer his sacrifice, God would come. He would descend upon that temple. It was a visible sign of God's presence. That God is not just transcendent, that He is far away, but He is near. He wants to live among His people. So turn back to Revelation because the beauty of this new Jerusalem is yes, it will be a fabulous, valuable, incredible place to live, but the beauty of this new Jerusalem is not all that primarily. It is that God lives there in this cube. It is the place where God's presence is and will be forevermore. We will never get away from God. Don Carson puts it this way, we will be perennially unshielded by the glorious splendor of the presence of God. And so the third feature of the city is that it is a city of God. It's a city of brilliance. It is a city of wealth. And it is the city of God where God resides. And we will be able to enjoy His presence forevermore, unhindered by any of our sin, by any corruption in this world, by any of the curses that there are in this world, by any of God's enemies. We will enjoy His fellowship unhindered. Perfect fellowship. We need to see two more things about this city because the text tells us in verses 23 to 26, it's also a city of light. There's no need for the sun or the moon to shine. Why? Verse 23, for the glory of God has illumined it and its lamp is the Lamb. Throughout the Scriptures, God is referred to as light. 1 John 1.5 That He is the Father of heavenly lights. James 1.17 That He lives in unapproachable light. 1 Timothy 6.16 And that's how the nations will get their light. They will come to it. Verse 24 The kings of the earth will bring their glory into their city, their wealth and their gifts. But not only that, it's not just that the kings of the earth, you know, the most powerful people 
on the earth that have ever lived will come into the city. Those who have trusted Christ, that is. And they won't bring their gifts because in order to add to God's, to God's wealth, but they'll bring themselves. Say, God, You changed me. I was a powerful man and You changed me. You brought me to Yourself. Like You did with Nebuchadnezzar. They were, as one commentator puts it, conquered by the good news of salvation. That God has the king's hand in his heart and he can turn it whatever way he wishes. And if he chooses to save that person, he will. And there's no night here. It will always be shining because of the glory of God. We will never get away from God's glory, from God's light, from God's beauty. And as I mentioned earlier in verse 25, the gates will always be opened. People will be able to go out and come in and spend eternity with God. Finally, it's a city of purity. So a city of brilliance, a city of wealth, the city of God, a city of light. And then verse 27, a city of purity. And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. This here is provided as a description to see what the city is like, but also as a warning to all people that if you are going to continue to practice sin, if you're going to continue to practice unrighteousness, don't, be, don't expect to be a part of that kingdom, that eternal kingdom. Don't expect to be able to enjoy God's presence forevermore because you know the kind of people that God lives among? Those who have been changed by His Son. So if you're not living like that now, if God hasn't changed you and has started to transform you, then don't expect to be a part of this kingdom. Because no unclean person, nothing abominable, no lying there would be a place of perfection. You see, all from, from the beginning of sin, God has been working to develop a relationship with His people. And you know who needed to change? It wasn't God. It was us. He needed to change us so that we could be purified. So that He could live among us. And we could be His people. And He can be our God. And that's what He does through the local church today. That's what He does in individual hearts as He reveals Himself to them in the Word. He starts to show them where they're wrong and where they need to change. And that's why we constantly need to be under the Word of God. Because God is transforming us to a place where we can live among Him. We can live with Him. Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We talked about that earlier. This time where we will spend eternity with God will be much better than any other time that a human has spent with God. You see, even in the Garden of Eden, God lived with Adam and Eve in a sense but they didn't have a full recognition of what He was willing to do for them. We recognize now on this side of the cross that God was willing to punish Christ for us. That we deserved God's just payment, condemnation, damnation. We deserved it. Why? Because of our sin. Because God is holy. You know where we see God's love most clearly? Right there at the cross. 
Adam and Eve didn't know about that clearly. They knew that there was going to be a Redeemer that would come and crush the head of the serpent, but they didn't know that clearly. Now that we stand on this side of the cross, we're going to have a, a, a far better fellowship with Him than Adam and Eve could even have. We will have permanent access to the unshielded presence of God where we can worship Him and enjoy Him forever. Think of it, believer. Think of it. Reflect on it often. Respond to it by, by living in hope and obedience and faith. And if you don't know Jesus Christ today, you don't know how you can be sure that you can be there. I would love to talk to you. You don't have to, to do any special rituals. You don't have to have somebody lay their hands on you. You simply need to submit yourself to Christ. And you can do that right from where you sit. You can do that from your home. You simply have to turn from your sin and believe that Jesus was enough to satisfy God's wrath, the wrath that you deserved. I would encourage you to do that today. You don't want to miss this eternal kingdom where God reigns as the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, it's hard for us to imagine what this place will be like. But the thing that we can take most pleasure in now is that we will be unhindered by our own sin, by our own corruption, by the trials that come in life. There will be no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more dying, no pain. We know that from earlier in the chapter that we saw last week. And that will be glory. We will forever be able to share in Your glory. We'll be able to enjoy Your presence. And we long for that day, those of us who are believers. We groan with the rest of creation because we know it's not perfect right now. That there are inconsistencies seemingly. We know You're still in control. But, but in this life, there are righteous people who get condemned by unrighteous kings. We know that there are unrighteous people who succeed, who become rich and, and, and get lots of notoriety and, and the unjust are often called great when they're not in your eyes. And so we know that in that eternal kingdom, all things will be made right. It will be clear who is on the Lord's side and we want to be on that side. Help us, we pray. If there's anyone here who does not know our Savior, who hasn't shared in the joy of recognizing their own sin and, and recognizing that He has paid for it on the cross. May You help them to see that clearly. May we live with hope, with faith, with joy, looking forward to this time when we will share and, and, and enjoy an unshielded, the unshielded presence of You forever in Your eternal temple. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.